live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, my name is Stephen Crouch of the Religion and Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. We are the sponsor of this podcast, Heart of a Heartless World. And today I'm joined by Dr. Eugene McCarraher, who is the Professor of Humanities and History at Villanova University. And he's also the author of Christian Critics, Religion and the Impasse in Modern Social Thought. He's written for Dissent and the Nation, and he contributes regularly to Commonweal, Hedgehog Review, and Raritan. His recent work, which we'll be talking about today, is entitled The Enchantments of Mammon, How Capitalism Became the Religion of Modernity. And this book was supported by fellowships from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Council of Learned Societies. So, Professor McCarraher, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's hap- I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and uh, I really enjoyed reading your book. I, I want to remind you. listeners that this is a, an 800-page tome that I believe you've been working on for, uh, you worked on for quite a number of years. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I worked on this book for uh, close to two decades. Wow. So you clearly put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this. <laughs> So this, this book, in this book, you explore the history, you go all the way from, from the, the origin of capitalism in, in England to the current epoch that we're in, which we might call neoliberalism. And in your book, you argue against the idea that modernity has led us to become a secular culture uh, for foregoing religion. And instead, you make the case that capitalism is actually our new religion, and you don't make that um, argument you don't really frame that in a good way, that capitalism is our new religion. And so in what ways would you say that this is our new religion? Well, I think uh, capitalism is, is a religion uh, in the sense both that it's characterized by a certain uh, set of beliefs uh, and convictions, but also by a set of behaviors, uh, also what, I, what you could call a certain set of rituals. And I think the reason that we don't usually acknowledge it as such is that it doesn't look like what we think of as traditional religion, uh, right? I mean, we don't usually say prayers before a board meeting. Uh, you know, we don't consult astrologers before we make stock market choices. Um, you know, you might pray if you're an evangelical Protestant, uh, but it's it's not standard practice, right? I mean, capitalism with its various practices looks secular, right? It doesn't, it doesn't invoke God or gods. Uh, it doesn't rely on any sort of divinities. It certainly doesn't foster any virtues like mercy or compassion. I think also one of the reasons that we don't see this as a religion is that even if we realize, um, 
however dimly and ineffectually that we're caught up in what I'm calling the enchantments of mammon, the sheer fact that our lives depend so much uh, on money and the market and the various forces and institutions of capital accumulation, all that means that we we have to participate. Um, and therefore, we have to enact its rituals uh, and, and perpetuate it. Uh, you know, even those of us who who oppose it, uh, you know, right? We we we're paid in money. Uh, the things we use uh, are are evaluated in terms of money. We all have to participate in a consumer market and a labor market. Um, so we're almost literally forced, in some ways, if we're religious, to be by theists uh, in an odd way. So I think, you know, the very fact to me that that money, as I argue in the book, has become a kind of moral and ontological arbiter um, in, in in our civilization means that in 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 many ways you know, money has displaced God. And I don't just mean that in the conventional way that uh, people say, oh, people, you know, people who are greedy worship money and all that. I mean, you know, greed has always been with us. That's, that's nothing new. And that would hardly be a, you know, an exceptional insight. But um, I think that money under capitalism really does become this kind of moral and ontological touchstone. Uh, in much the way that uh, somewhat like Marx realized that it was, even though I think Marx, Marx was in some ways, I think, a better theologian than even he realized. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think Marx, in fact, needed theology to some, in some way complete or fill out what he thought about capitalism. Right. And at the same time, you're expanding on Marx. I mean, like Marx talks about commodity fetishism, which is where we attribute these like magical properties to things that don't inherently have magical properties. But you're saying something a little bit different than him. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm saying a couple of things actually different from Marx. I mean, first of all, I I think I would want to expand on his own insight uh, in in the notion of commodity fetishism that you know, objects, in a sense, lose their use value and become reduced or transformed into their exchange value. You know, what he's saying there is an effect that, as I've said, money becomes a kind of um, ontological arbiter of what's real. You know, he has this great passage in uh, some one of his early writings um, in the in the Marx Engels reader that ever, that so many people are familiar with, it's it's entitled "The Power of Money in Bourgeois Society," and he he in effect expands on what in conventional economics is called um, effective demand. Right? If 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 you have a demand for water, for example, but you have no money to buy water, in according to the notion of effective demand, you are literally not thirsty if you cannot translate that demand in dollar terms in the marketplace. And in this passage in his early writings, Marx basically says the same thing, right? You know, if I'm ugly, but if I have money, uh, you know, I can become beautiful and I can attract, you know, beautiful women. If I'm stupid, but if I have money, I can buy myself an education and therefore I can be smart, right? In other words, money can actually, in an odd way, create things ex nihilo. So, 
in a way, money does become, as Marx himself calls it, a divine being uh, in under capitalism. But the other thing that I'm that I'm saying that's rather different from Marx is that I don't think the world ever could be disenchanted because. As a Christian, I attribute to the world a, a sacramental quality. So I would argue that the world is always enchanted. It's what I'm what I think capitalism represents is a form of what I call in the book misenchantment, not just disenchantment. It's a it's a kind of perversion uh, of both the sacramentality of the world and of our longing to to live. Uh, in such a sacramental world and, and, you know, pursue sacramental ways of being. Uh, that's, I know that to somebody like Marx and perhaps to Marxists, that's a lot of theological hooey, but, um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's the basis of, uh, the most profound kind of critique you can make of capitalism. Yeah. And can you, can you talk a little bit more about why like viewing the world, the physical world as enchanted, why, why that is such an important basis for further critique, as opposed to just imagining that everything's just like physical things and that's it. Well, I think that if you view the world, uh, as simply sort of inanimate stuff, right. As just plain old matter, dumb matter, right. I think there are a number of, of consequences that, that, that stem from that. I mean, you know, one is that, you, that I think you're inevitably going to view the world purely in instrumental terms. Uh, you're, you're simply going to look at it as basically a kind of warehouse of resources that you can exploit uh, technologically, uh, financially, and so on. I mean, this is the sort of thing that uh, Pope Francis talks about in Laudato Si. Uh, you know, in what he calls the technocratic paradigm. I think also you you are going to start seeing human beings in, in the same fashion. Um, you're going to see them as, you know, forces to be manipulated, forces to be, forces to be extracted, right? I mean, we, we raise these ideals of productivity. And I think these ideals, you can see them actually in capitalist and, you know, I have to say in, in, a lot of socialist societies uh, were the same way. This 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 obsession with growth and productivity um, I, again, I think, stems from simply seeing the world as you know inanimate stuff that we are free to manipulate in whatever way we choose. Yeah, I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I like your book so much because it's not only a critique of capitalist society, but it's also a critique of this like very reductive form of marxism mm -hmm. or socialism that just treats uh, relies on the exploitation of uh, nature and human beings still despite claiming to be socialist or whatever yeah i i know that there are certain uh certain sort of currents in in contemporary marxism uh you know represented by writers like jason moore uh you know and john bellamy foster who are you know trying i think in a sense to green marx Right. Or to or, or to make Marx into some kind of a green. And, you know, I get it and I can see the argument, uh, you know, to a certain extent, especially with more. But I just I just can't help but think that when you read Marx in the Gradrissa and in Capital, Marx really does still see the world uh, 
as I think it was Adorno who wrote this at one point, or Horkheimer, I can't remember, who said that, you know, Marx really did see the world as a factory. Uh, and I and I think that stems from Marx's, uh, I'm going to put it in quotes, secular uh, view of matter. And as you say, reductive view of matter. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. That, well, that also um, reminds me of a, a big thrust of your book. You're talking about uh, romanticism, yeah. and this specifically shows up in um, the, your discussion of the Protestant work ethic, and which you're you're critical of, but you say that there's also in another Protestant work ethic, which is an affirmation of emotional experience that is uh, eventually culminated in evangelical religion and romanticism. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the notion of an other Protestant ethic is one that I borrow from uh, a British sociologist, uh, Colin Campbell, who wrote a really good book in the early, no, it was the late 80s, called The Romantic Ethic and the Spirit of Modern Consumerism, Right which, you know, I guess is kind of a clever take on Weber's Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. But uh, one of the arguments that Campbell makes in that book is that in order to understand modern consumer, what he calls modern consumerism, and I don't know if you want to get to it, but I have a little, I have sort of beef with the notion of consumerism. But, but in, any, in any event, um, Campbell makes this argument that you cannot understand modern consumerism or the modern uh, consumer experience unless you trace it to romanticism. And romanticism's roots he finds in the 17th century, not the 18th century, in this figure in uh, particularly English literature of the man of feeling, right, or the man of sensibility, right, who is attuned to his emotions and who feels intensely. And I think it's I think it's true to say that that from this man of feeling or this man of sensibility you do you do see that flowing both into Protestant evangelicalism and to romanticism but I think as as I demonstrate in the book I think this the, these two things go in very different directions um evangelicalism Protestant evangelicalism, uh, and I mostly talk about it in its uh, U.S. context, I have to say I really do come down hard on Protestant evangelicalism from the 18th from the, I'm sorry, the early 19th century all the way down to the present. I think Chris Lehman is absolutely hit the nail on the head when he called it uh, the money cult. I, I, I think that evangelicalism is enchantment for people on the make. Uh, it, it has perfectly reconciled itself with markets. It has perfectly reconciled itself with capitalism. I think it's a form of Christianity that has that is largely bought and paid for. And and I, I know that if, if you have any evangelical listeners, they are probably going to bristle at, at, at that pronouncement. But I, I think the history is pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, we probably have uh, a, a, maybe a fair amount of uh, evangelical or, or at least post-evangelical listeners, but I'm kind of curious where... Well, I'll expect, I'll expect the hostile emails and phone calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it'll, it'll all be in good faith, I'm sure. But I'm also, I'm also curious if, if this form of romanticism preceded evangelicalism, uh, how come it didn't pick up on this, uh, I guess, a left version of romanticism? You mean, why did evangelicalism not take that term? Right. 
Well, I think it has to do with the fact that evangelicalism uh, in, in, in America, at least, uh, and I, I, I would imagine this is, I think this is also the case to a great extent with its British counterpart, uh, was emerged in the United States during what uh, historians have called the market revolution uh, of the 1820s to the 1840s. I think its, its ethos and its sensibility has been bound up uh, from the very beginning with the, you know, with that of the, the independent entrepreneur and the huckster, the, you know, the evangelicals were Arminians, uh, rather than, you know, sort of strict Calvinists. And, you know, even though I don't, I don't have much time for Calvinism to be quite honest. And there's another bunch of emails and phone calls, I suppose I'll get, (laughs) um, from angry Calvinists. But, uh, one thing I'll say about Calvinists and, you know, the, the Puritans is that as much as they themselves fostered uh, a lot of the enchantments of Mammon, I think they still had enough of a sense, uh, you know, that Mammon was a false god uh, and that uh, avarice was a sin. You don't you don't get this with evangelicals, right? Be- precisely because there are Arminians who don't believe in predestination any longer, uh, and so they don't feel that market activity is, you know, still has a, a bit of a taint you know, to it. And so I think that's one reason it never went, or, or I, I think it would have great difficulty going in a, in, a, in a really left direction, because I just think that the whole uh, mindset and sensibility of evangelicalism is just saturated in market thinking. And it, and it has been from the beginning. Right. So, so that's, that's how evangelicalism may, may have gone wrong. So what are the sources you're talking about for a, a more anti-capitalist romanticism? And I think, I think listeners right. will also appreciate this too, since uh, like one of the honorary co-chairs of uh, DSA is uh, Dr. Cornell West, who talks a lot about this left version of romanticism. So who in yeah. particular are your, your sources or what, in your opinion, what are the best um, uh, renditions of that. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me just say a little bit about how I think this is connected to what you know Campbell talks about, and then then expand on that. One of the important features of Romanticism that I think has to be emphasized is that it's not just about the you know the affirmation of emotional experience uh, and interiority and intensity and richness of feeling. This is this is how we often think about capital R Romanticism, right? It's all about subjectivity. The way I read Romanticism, uh, and here I'm, you know, I'm I'm basing this on, um, uh, you know, the work of uh, of uh, Abrams and uh, Bernard Reardon, is to see Romanticism as what 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 Romantics themselves would call call it in terms of imagination. This was a big word among Romantic writers uh, and poets. And imagination to the romantics didn't simply mean, you know, fancy or something that was purely uh, about, you know, what was going on in your head. Imagination to the romantics was actually a way of seeing. You know, we often we often say the romantics are visionaries, and I don't think we think deeply enough about what we're saying because visionaries have vision, right? They see things. So imagination to romantics was a kind of a portal onto reality, um, a way of understanding how the how the world really worked. In fact, there's this uh, there's this wonderful phrase from uh, Wordsworth 
in which he, he talks about imagination as reason in her most exalted mood. So romanticism to me is a way of seeing the world, which is a kind of historical heir to the medieval sacramental imagination. You know, you could have, you had Christian romantics, you had non-Christian romantics, uh, you had romantics who were some sort of melange of uh, Christian, non-Christian, perhaps we might say post-Christian. Uh, and I actually, and I interpret romanticism not simply to be a movement of the early 19th century, but I actually see romanticism as a feature of modern culture. Uh, you can see this all the way down to, I think, in some ways, a lot of the uh, contemporary ecological movement uh, is is romantic uh, in this sense, in the way they try to understand nature as being more than simply, you know, as we as we said earlier, simply more than just a lot of stuff to be manipulated. Now, my the, the romantics that I look at uh, and and in many ways affirm are people like John Ruskin, the uh, the art historian, but also social critic. Uh, William Morris, uh, the great polymath socialist, anarchists, you know, from um, Peter Kropotkin to uh, Murray Bookchin, uh, arts and crafts writers uh, and communities such as the ones that emerged in the United States and the U.S. or the United States and Britain in the uh, late 19th, early 20th centuries. You know, I look at figures like... Um, Lewis Mumford, I see as a as a great romantic philosopher of technology, historian of technology. Uh, Vida Dutton Scudder, the American uh, Episcopal theologian and socialist. Uh, fig- even figures such as Theodore Rozak, uh, you know, author of the the making of a counterculture, who I think is actually underestimated as as an intellectual. Uh, I know that he's often sort of dismissed as being a kind of uh, guru or, you know, uh, some sort of a champion of the of the 60s counterculture, when in fact, I think he's a very keen critic of it. So there's a long line of these people who uh, I, I think in many ways generate a much more profound and humane uh, and generous critique of capitalism than you know, sort of liberal or Marxist or social democratic uh, figures. And from what you're saying, too, like, uh, since a lot of religious socialists seem to take kind of this more romantic posture, do you see this as being helpful in combating, uh, like, there is no alternative to capitalism or capitalist realism? Yes, I do. Uh, I I think that... um, Religious socialists, I think, will have something, you know, compelling to counter, you know, defenses of capitalism uh, as, as, you know, there's no alternative to it. I think to the extent that it's religious and and especially religious in the romantic form uh, that I champion in the the book, you know, not simply in the sense of religious socialism uh, or religious socialists inveighing against injustice, uh, which you know, they certainly should. That's, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case. But also, I think that those kinds of, you know, crusades against injustice have to be rooted in a sense that, you know, the world is a certain way, that it, that religious socialists should be fighting not just for justice, but for ways of being in the world that are consonant with the way the world actually is. 
And does that go back to your idea of viewing the world as enchanted? Yeah, I do. I think that too many religious socialists may, even if they're even if they're uh, of a sort of a capital R romantic variety, I think they still, in many ways, they still accept you know the the account of disenchantment or secularization. Uh, that's pretty standard, right? I mean, it's it's the one that we've inherited from you know Max Weber, from Marx, uh, from the whole sociological tradition, uh, where you know it's summarized in Charles Taylor's book, right, A Secular Age, where well, you know, even if you're religious, you still live in what he calls right the imminent frame, where we don't really believe that you know there are spirits or divinities or you know if you want to get dismissive ghosts or goblins in the world. And, um, you know, we might believe in God, but we still think that God is kind of hermetically sealed out of the physical universe and, and all of this. And I, I just think that if you keep, you know, adhering to that secularization account, to that, you know, that story of disenchantment, you're just going to keep getting the same result. Uh, and, and I think we have to be telling different stories about the way the world is. If, if, uh, if you're going to really counter the 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 power of capitalism, right? And so, to get a little bit more specific on this romantic posture, I'm I'm kind of curious of uh, what this can add to the discussion around work. Uh, so, mm-hmm. at the end of your book, you argue that uh, today's workers' movement should fight for better work and less of it. Uh, how mm-hmm. did you come to that, and how does that stack up against other arguments on the left around work? Well, the romantic, what I'll call the romantic account of work or the romantic ethic of work, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a work ethic, runs against two accounts of work, which I think have been pretty prevalent. The first, of course, is the Protestant work ethic uh, against against which, you know, I, I have set my standard you know, for quite a long time. I, I, I really do agree with writers like uh, David Graeber and uh, James Livingston who have basically called the Protestant work ethic a, a, sado, a form of sadomasochistic moralism, uh, you know, where we see work as simply an end in itself, uh, you know, not as a means to an end. Uh, it's a way to ward off demons, uh, you know, the, especially of self-doubt. It also is a kind of moralism which, which says that access to, access to goods and even access in some sense to life itself depends on the production of exchange values. And it's also an ethic which has devalued you know, pleasure and joy in life. And so I, that, that's one kind of account of work that, that uh, I want to take down in this book. But I also think that the romantics are in some ways very different from, uh, you know, Marxist accounts of work. You know, I, I think you're seeing in Marx and in the Marxist tradition as a whole something of a battle between two different accounts of labor, right? So you've got this account of labor in the early Marx where labor is about self-creation and it's about self-expression. You know, it's a very sort of artisanal conception of work. But then by the time you're getting to the Grundrisse and, uh, you know, to to capital, you're starting to see labor as something to, to escape from, right, through, especially through automation. And I'm not sure that Marx or the Marxist tradition has really ever genuinely reconciled these two things. You know, I think partly because of Marx's demarcation 
uh, of what he calls the realm of necessity and the realm of freedom. And this idea that the realm of necessity is always going to be one of, you know, arduousness and drudgery and freedom is all about play and delight. And, you know, in his account, the two, the two realms never meet. But to the romantics, um, you know, I think you can see this again in people like Ruskin, anarchists, uh, arts and crafts writers, people like Mumford and Scudder and Dorothy Day and uh, Theodore Rozak. You see work not just as productivity, but you also see it as uh, what the Greeks used to call poesis, right? The the embodiment uh, or concrete expression of manual and aesthetic and intellectual prowess in the in the fabrication of useful and or beautiful things. Uh, and I also would want to add that this notion of poesis, I think, can also illuminate. Uh, the realm of care, uh, care work, because, you know, if I, if I have one criticism to make of my book, I, I, I didn't spend enough time perhaps talking about care work uh, as opposed to production. Do you feel like the pandemic uh, brought you to that conclusion? Yeah, I think it did. Um, I think also, also reading a lot of Graeber's stuff, um, uh, you know, some of his, some of his uh, last couple of books, especially the, uh, the book on bullshit jobs uh, was one that really brought this, really brought this into my into my head in a new way. I'd never thought about this this much or this keenly before. That care work can also be a form of poesis, as well as you know making stuff. You know, there's this one there's this one really simple but really illuminating thing that Graeber writes somewhere. He says, you know, you make a cup, you make a cup once, but you clean it a thousand times. And, you know, that's one of those sentences that you read and you, it, it hits you with the force of revelation. Yeah, <laughs> you know? it's so it's simple. So it's so true. It, you know, I, and you sit there and you think, God, that's right. I never thought of that before. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it, it opens all kinds of doors. And so I think, I, I think that a, a capital R romantic uh, account of work, you know, sees it not just as ways of making stuff. But but also as ways of maintaining things and 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 as and also work as a way of cultivating human beings at, and 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 making us all allowing us all to be artists in our in our own way. Right. Yeah. I remember one of the first times I heard you talk. I I think I heard you say that uh, you, you still believe that work does cult- cultivate virtue. And that, oh, it does. That, that's something worth holding on to. I think that that's a, that's a part of the Protestant ethic and even part of the Marxist account of work, which which I think is absolutely true and it's indispensable. The question the question should be which virtues do we want to cultivate, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, and and I think the problem part of the problem with the Protestant work ethic is that it seems that work becomes a virtue unto itself, and I think this is. Uh, spiritually, psychologically, physically, just damaging. Um, yeah. You know, I think Livingston and Graeber and a lot of writers about work are right about this. This is a form of this is a form of sadomasochism uh, right. that, that you know that we really need to to, to dispense with. Yeah, I love all that. I also, um, in our last few minutes of this, I want to talk a little bit about your diagnosis of the uh, misenchantment in our current era and the neoliberal and whatever 
moment we're in now. And then I want to talk a little bit about um, your project that you're working on right now. So, and what is your, what is your diagnosis? Like what kind of moment are we in now and how is it misenchanted? The neoliberal moment that we're in right now, uh, and I do think, I do believe that there is something called neoliberalism. I know that there's a, there's something of a debate about whether neoliberalism is a thing or not. I, I do think it is a thing. I see neoliberalism as in some ways you could call it either the pinnacle or the nadir uh, of, of the misenchantments of capitalism, because I think we've reached a moment or we're possibly coming out of a moment where, you know, the translation of everything and everyone into pecuniary values uh, was just rampant. Um, you know, I think money, neoliberalism names uh, a civilization in which money and the market be, really does become the, the moral and ontological touchstones of, of, our, of our culture uh, and our economy. I think you can see it in an intellectual level with the acceptance uh, for a long time of the writings of people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig Mises and the popularity of, oh, that awful person, Ayn Rand, um, <laughs> you know, who was the favorite novelist of Paul Ryan, you know, another, another something I cannot understand if this guy claims to be a Catholic, but, you know, that's, that's a subject for another discussion. And you can see it in what, you know, Thomas Frank once called market populism, which reached a crescendo in the, in the 1990s and the, and the 2000s before the 2008 uh, meltdown. So I, I, I think for the last two to three decades, ne- neoliberalism has been the regnant form, you know, of, of, of the misenchantments of mammon, uh, because it really was an attempt. To, to turn everything into everything into a commodity, you know, to, to privatize everything and to monetize everything. I think we I think we're coming out of that to some degree. I think we're in a moment where many, many, many people are disenchanted with neoliberalism, but they're also demoralized. You know, I mean, I, I, I sense that a lot of people know just how horrible the conditions are in which we live. Uh, and I think that COVID, uh, the COVID pandemic has been apocalyptic in that sense, that not just in the sense of ending things, but in the sense of apocalypsis as revelation, uh, you know, it, it, it really has, I think, disclosed just how awful and corrupt and plutocratic and dysfunctional so many of our institutions are. But the problem is that people don't sense an alternative. You know, and I think that's that's going whoever is going to provide the most convincing alternative is going to win the cultural and political moment. Right. Yeah. I, I think we're in, a, we're in a we're in an interregnum of some kind. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it almost reminds me of uh, like in the 1970s or maybe early 80s when uh, yes. it, it was this moment where like Milton Friedman has that quote about like in times of crisis, you look for ideas that are lying around. Yeah. And it seems like we're, we're scrambling for those types of ideas now. You know, I, I've never thought I would ever quote Rahm Emanuel, but you know, he, he (laughs) did, he did say one thing, right, which is that you should never let a crisis go to waste. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Professor McCarher, I also want to hear about uh, what kind of projects you're working now. So what's, what's in the pipeline for you? Sure. Um, So I'm working on a short and I do 
swear to God, short book uh, about <laughs> about automation. Uh, it's a it's kind of a, a short history and critique of automation. Uh, the tentative title is Automated Vistas. You know, it's kind of a ripoff of Walt Whitman's Democratic Vistas. And what I'm doing is, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm trying to provide a history of the notion of automatons or, you know, mechanization, robots, whatever, from, you know, antiquity all the way to the, to the present day. But I don't want to simply, I, I want to use, you know, thinking about automation as, as a way of trying to deal with two things. One is, uh, you know, just immediate sort of political and uh, technological questions. I'm very much alarmed by two different ways of, or two, two different accounts of automation in, in the contemporary world. Uh, one, of course, being the sort of celebration of, of technological advance that you get in corporate circles and in a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley circles, uh, which, which ultimately leads, I think, into this kind of transhumanism that I just really find creepy in, in, in a lot of ways. But also, to a certain extent, directed against techno utopians on the left, uh, you know, such as Paul Mason and uh, Peter Fraze and Aaron Bastani, who I think I think that, that some sectors of the left have basically farmed out their political imaginations to Silicon Valley. You know, it's as though we're, we're going to let we're going to let the technocrats invent all of these wonderful machines and then we're just going to take over. And I just don't think it's that simple. Uh, number one. I don't think that they address a lot of ecological issues with automation. I don't think they address a lot of, frankly, human issues. And I guess that's my second, the second dimension of what I want to try to do in this book, which is to ask questions about what it means to be a human being, what it means to live a good life. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, going back to what, what I said about uh, we should have better work and less of it. You know, I sympathize with the post-work, you know, writers to the extent that, yes, I do think that people work far too much and we should have shorter work days and more free time. You know, I'm all I'm all I'm all with them on that, comrades. Right. I'm with you. Right. But but I also think that, you know, human beings need better work. In other words, I don't think we should simply automate (laughs) all of the things that we need to do. I can certainly, you know, see arguments for automating all kinds of tedious and or dangerous labor. But I also think that there are forms of labor that human beings really enjoy doing, and we should cultivate that. We should, we should allow people to do that. Um, I think what a, what, a lot of, uh, what a lot of writers on the left are saying really is that they want to eliminate wage labor, which, which again, I'm all for, right? But I think that often translates rather fuzzily into we want to eliminate work. Well, first of all, you can't eliminate work, <laughs> you know, number one, uh, yeah. because, you know, I think there's a problem of infinite regression there, right? I mean, who's going to make the ice cream, the robots? Well, who's going to make the robots? Well, more robots. Now you see the problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, but I also think that human beings need to be creative. We need to uh, exercise our faculties in some kind of, in some kind of way, or else I think we're going to go nuts. And uh, do you have a timeline on when you expect this book to come out and from what publisher? <laughs> I'm actually supposed to get the manuscript done by midsummer. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, 
so uh, yeah, so I, I, I think I probably am going to get it done by uh, June or July, and then I'm I'm thinking probably it'll be out next year. Great. And then where can listeners uh, buy your Enchantments of Mammon book? Well, it's published uh, with Harvard University Press. So uh, I, I guess you can buy it at fine bookstores near you if there are any left. Uh, you can <laughs> buy it through Harvard University Press. Or if you're really desperate, you can go to Amazon. Great. Professor Eugene McCarher, it's been great talking to you today. I loved your book, and congratulations on your masterful achievement in completing it over many, many years of uh, blood, sweat, and tears. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hopefully, no blood. Hopefully, no, yeah. No blood. No blood was was spilled. Yeah. Right. No, it's been great to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you for your time. Hmm. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you liked what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.